Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You are listening to Failed State Update. I am your co-host, Joseph L. Flatley, and I am with J.G. Michael. How are you doing, J.G.? Uh, doing as well as can be in the United States of delusion. Um, so, <laughs> Yeah, speaking of delusions, just real quick, I'll, I'll remind people that Failed State Update is not just a podcast. It's also a website. I'm the editor and uh, the main writer at this point, uh, but soon that will change, hopefully. This has been an interesting week, actually, because I was charged with attempted murder by a sovereign citizen group based on the Internet, actually. I don't know where they're based. I think their headquarters, their main guy is in Florida. But, you know, they're sovereign citizens. You can hardly tell where they are. I got to ask you something. Yeah. I know the term sovereign citizen, and I guess they there's like weird stuff about them and like I don't have to have a driver's license because I'm not in, you know, control of the the state. The state doesn't control me. Yeah, yeah. What exactly are the sovereign citizens? Well, if you approach sovereign citizens from any of their claims, if you talk to a sovereign citizen and ask them to get down to the bottom of it, it won't really make any sense because it's not like a coherent worldview. It doesn't seem to be as much as just like, an attitude like you just described. And what it really comes from is the farm foreclosure crisis of the 80s, which, you know, the whole Midwest was racked with, you know, farms are closing, people were losing their jobs, the economy tanked, and people's way of lives, way of life in the Midwest, in the Corn Belt or whatever, was just totally ruined. And Washington didn't really seem to care. Nobody really kind of explained to these people how or why. Very similar to what's happening now in the rest of the country. So conspiracy theories took root. A group you probably heard of called the Posse Comitatus had a philosophy that was very much about we don't trust the government and we think we know better than the government and eventually the government is it's not even valid. We've seen the receipts and the government's not valid. Does this tie into like – I think they have like a legal theory – called like the straw man theory. And then like, I don't know if this ties in, I don't recall, but uh, like, like, does this tie in with all that stuff about, you hear it from like right wing militias in the nineties, but this idea that uh, the USA is actually a corporation. Yes. And if you look at the flag, there's that gold fringe and it proves that we're not actually a, a, a state where a corporation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this whole posse comitatus thing, this weird reactionary conspiracy minded, populism that was a uh, direct result of the farm crisis kind of split off into two parts. It it split into the militia movement, which we're going to be discussing in this episode, or you will be. And then also 
the sovereign citizen movement, which is the more philosophically minded version of this. And what it kind of boils down to a lot of times is people thinking that, you know, we've read the it's a conspiracy theorists look at the legal system. It's like we've read the laws and we know the truth. And the truth is we don't need driver's license where the police have no power over us or I'm not a United States citizen. Kind of one of the like reigning biggest beliefs is that the United States of America is a corporation. And when it became a corporation, I don't know, a hundred years ago or whatever, or I think sometimes they say around the Civil War, sometimes it's like before World War One. But whenever the United States became a corporation, the international bankers opened bank accounts in everybody's name for like thousands or millions of dollars or whatever it is. And if you if you know this, you can figure out a way to like get your money back. <laughs> and like they believe in some really weird stuff. So they're basically like tied into the whole like, I don't want to pay my taxes deal. Yeah, pretty much. It's like it's a conspiracy theory that pops up. Um, when people feel powerless and dislike the government and, you know, these conspiracy theories are just, they just kind of like worm their way into certain people's belief systems. So I discovered a group, actually, uh, Lucian Greaves, who's the co-founder of the Satanic Temple. Around Christmas last year, he received a, a notice that him and all Satanists were evicted from the United States. And um, Greaves replied and was asking, you know, what are the terms of this? Because if we're all going to get up and leave, we should know what's going on. And it turned into just basically kind of like a troll fest where like the Satanists were like sneaking into the Zoom meetings of the sovereign citizens and, you know, swearing and putting like dirty pictures in the Zoom room and stuff. What, what What is going on with these sovereign citizens? You would think they would have better OPSEC. Oh, my gosh. Well, they... Apparently, I've, I've heard some recordings of meetings. They just sound like boomers that can't figure their shit out. Like they can't figure out how to make a meeting private or that sort of thing. I mean, it's laughable. Like basically this organization, it's called Temple of the Reign of Heaven or something. And uh, T-Row, Temple of the Reign of the Heavens. And it's like basically some self-proclaimed genius figured out that the truth about the Bible and how, like, I think he said heaven is a country, not a place. You know, and of course, like, the Catholic Church suppressed the information in the year 300 or something and changed the name of G- of Yahweh to Jesus. So um, the sovereigns are reconstituting this sacred kingdom. And really, it's just like a bunch of WordPress websites. It's like, you know, it's like the template, and they, they don't change the dummy language. So you go to the website, and it says, you know, Ipsum Delorum or whatever. And, um, but they, they spend hours and hours a week on, in Zoom, like passing laws and forming tribunals and like play acting, LARPing, like they're a government. So they issued death threats against, uh, Lucian Greaves. I heard about this, so I wrote about it. They contacted me last night and said that, um, what was the exact, all right, the exact email was, you just committed attempted murder, my friend, and you did not follow international protocol. Your name and evidence will be placed into the great jury as evidence against you is filed. You will receive full due process. And then when I wrote them back, they just ignored me. So so now I'm on their list. And 
um, if you go to failedstateupdate.com, you can, you know, check out the whole saga as well as other stories that we've done this week. But it's just a crazy, it's just been a crazy couple days. Like you write about the Satanic Temple, and then all of a sudden, every conspiracy theorist thinks you're like working with them to like, I don't know, do something for the CIA. And then you write about sovereign citizens and every sovereign citizen wants to see you in their tribunal. So you write about both of them and it's just a real headache. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. (laughs) So Spencer Sunshine is a longtime anti-fascist researcher uh, I would say that he follows in the footsteps of someone who I, I hold in pretty high regard. I may not agree with him on everything, but uh, Chip Burlett. Uh, for people that don't know, Chip Burlett was uh, an analyst for Political Research Associates, and uh, he really became a, a big figure uh, covering uh, you know right wing extremism. Uh, since, oh, I would say around the time of the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, Chip sort of researches all the networks uh, behind the rise of, you know, uh, right-wing movements of the very extreme variety in the United States. And also, uh, Chip's very well known for covering uh, Lyndon LaRouche and the LaRouche movement. So uh, I bring that up because that's sort of, what Spencer Sunshine comes out of. He's sort of following in the footsteps of uh, Chip Burlett uh, because Chip, he's gotten older and uh, due to health reasons, isn't uh, able to really cover this stuff as much anymore. So people like Spencer have sort of uh, taken up that work. And it's interesting because I mentioned uh, how Chip Burlett uh, covered Lyndon LaRouche. Well, you know, LaRouche is this weird figure that sort of, and his movement in general, is sort of strange in that it tries to appeal, I think, to this sort of uh, almost like left liberal kind of talking points at times, like uh, the, the appeals to FDR and whatnot that you find in the LaRouche movement. And that sort of ties into our conversation that Spencer and I had because we talk at the beginning about the militia movement, but then we talk about uh, the issue of anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Semitism manifesting on the left, right? Um, And really, you can find instances where uh, right-wingers, especially anti-Semitic right-wingers, have tried to uh, do entryism on the left. Uh, and, And we mentioned one specific example uh, this fellow by the name of uh, Christopher Boleyn, who's associated with uh, Willis Cardo's American Free Press for many years, uh, sort of warming his way into the more lefty-leaning segments of the 9-11 truth movement. So I think that's uh, really interesting how you know these sort of extreme right elements often try to warm their way into left-wing spaces – And I think it all sort of ties together, and you'll see that in the conversation. But we begin the conversation by talking about the Oath Keepers. And uh, I think it's interesting uh, that we talked about the Oath Keepers because one thing that Spencer gets into is how uh, people like Stuart Rhodes are almost uh, these – you know they're actually very clownish figures, right? And I think that gets missed a lot when discussing these – Uh, right-wing movements because, you know, as terrifying as 
um, the sort of radical right in this country are, you know, I think it often gets lost in the shuffle. There's also a clownishness to these type of people. I don't know if you saw the recent documentary Trafficked. It dealt with uh, far right wingers going to Ukraine to train with the Azov Battalion um, and to, you know, basically gain skills for their own paramilitary stuff, but also do recruitment and whatnot. Um, a lot of the people that went to do that, these right wingers uh, come out of the sort of uh, James Mason siege mentality, which Mason is sort of this crazed neo-Nazi that, you know, worshipped Charles Manson and whatnot. Um, but it's interesting because you watch this documentary and you have these goofballs uh, with their little skeleton masks on uh, saying, you know, we are going to wreck the U.S., blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, the way that they're interviewed, you know, they should be being laughed at because, I mean, these are people who want to project the image of being sh strong and they're going to bring down democracy. But they're also just these – most of the time they're just sad little people, right? They want you to think they're stronger than they really are. You know, th these are not – people that have succeeded in life, which is why they become neo-Nazis, right? So this documentary was interesting to me because it really did not capture that. It sort of gave these members of, um, I think it's Adam Waffen, uh, it sort of gave them what they wanted in a way because it makes them seem like, oh yeah, we're, we're strong and mighty and we're going to destroy the, the democracy. And really, I mean, these are, you know, nerds that live in their basement, <laughs> I mean, it's a tough call, you know, just as a filmmaker or someone reporting these stories, because it's like they are laughable until they're not anymore. You read about the brown shirts leading up to World War II, you know, when, when Hitler was seizing power and they were a bunch of jackasses, you know, but they were able to break enough heads and break enough windows that, you know, it was no longer a joke after. Well, a you should point. you should always take them. You should take it seriously, but you shouldn't allow them to get a PR victory on you. Well, that yeah, that's that's what I was kind of driving towards. Is it's like, how do you address this without platforming, for lack of a better word, you know, platforming them? How do you, which, you know, my default is always, I'm telling stories for adults. And if adults can't tell that the Adam Waffen is bad without me making it explicit, then, you know, <laughs> maybe they shouldn't be on the Internet. But is that so responsible when everybody's in this fucking fog of disinformation and 24-7? It's, it's a tough call. You know, if you really look at a person like James Mason, I, I mean, he's a very pathetic person. I mean, <laughs> he's just this old man, right? Like, don't. We, we we have to take seriously the, the threat of things like lone wolf terrorism, mm -hmm. but we also don't want to play into the image they want to have of being, yeah. you know, super badasses. Because right. they're really not. I mean, these are people that would get their asses kicked in a fight. Right. Yeah, it's like basically the vicification of news. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> get up! Because it's party time! Clap your hands! Come on! Let me hear you, cause I'm, <laughs> I'm Dr. Phil, dude! If you're feeling low, well, and no where to go, and you don't... 
I've done a variety of activism, of research. Uh, I do a mix of um, popular writing and some academic stuff. So I've published in journals. Uh, I've written a lot of uh, popular articles. I wrote mostly for Truth Out as well as Color Lines throughout all the Trump administration. Um, I was doing a lot of this work beforehand. So I was one of the few people who was really like up and running. Uh, I, 2016. In 2015, I started a uh, work on a report about the militias in Oregon. There had been a minor takeover there, which in January 2016 ended up in the Ammon Bundy and his crew uh, doing an armed takeover of the Malheur Refuge. And I ended up at, I went back to, flew back to Oregon and went to Malheur. Um, I ended up in Charlottesville at the demonstration and in the car attack. So um, after which I sort of decided it wasn't good to be in front of the, uh, the moving, uh, violent, a moving violent social movement, you know, without, uh, without some more backup. I, I was going to say, you're also, uh, as I understand it, the victim of a few, uh, really out there right-wing conspiracy theories, supposedly, according to these 4chan people, uh, I've heard that you've been accused of, uh, being the QAnon shaman. <laughs> oh yeah. So, oh, not the 4chan people much bigger than that. So yeah, really weird stuff happens to me every year or two. There's like some very strange and quite different things. So the night of the uh, Capitol takeover, Lynn Wood, who was one of the lawyers for Trump, who was suing the States claiming there was voter fraud, the Kraken lawsuits, um, claimed that I was the QAnon shaman. Not quite sure. And he had, he did it on Twitter and he had like a million followers on his Twitter. So you can imagine this got picked up by all these um, right wing wing nuts. And this went on. I got death threats, which at this point are, you know, like water. Um, and so this went on for a period of time. Um, yeah, I don't know why he did it to Jake and Jelly, who's now serving time in prison. Um, but it worked well for me. There's, I wrote a Daily Beast article about it. Uh, and then there's a Vice episode about it that half a million people have viewed. It's very strange. Anyway, it's the culmination of a decade-long anti-Semitic conspiracy theory about me that started that I was uh, like the ideological leader of Antifa and then the international leader of Antifa. And it just kept spiraling. Um, it got picked up first started in neo-Nazi circles and then got picked up by more like alt-light people. And then somehow Lynn Wood picked it up and, and threw the ball down, to, down further. Kick the can. I'm terrible with metaphors. So, With regards to your work on militias, that's a good jumping off point to talk about Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers. What do you think people don't understand um, about the militia movement? Because I think people forget you know, the militia movement was something that a lot of people were very concerned about in the 1990s, especially after the Oklahoma City bombing. And they were really sort of, you know, a, a scary thing back then. And uh, I, I think we've sort of seen almost the revenge of the militias uh, since the Trump era began. I guess there's two things that people don't really understand about the militias. Uh, first, uh, they kind of go in boom and bust cycles. Uh, they're part of a larger dynamic of far-right activity. And um, Chipper Lay and Matthew Lyons mentioned this in uh, Right Wing Populism in America, their book from 2000, that these far-right movements tend to go in boom and bust cycles. And, and they have for hundreds of years. Um, and the militias are no exception to this. There were proto-militia uh, armed groups, but who sound almost exactly like the militias in the 60s, such as the Minutemen, um, they would be a militia today. And they would be like the Oath Keepers, because, except they were much more heavily armed and they played like the explosives and a lot. But they were a membership-based organization that had almost exactly the same political lines. 
you know, the U.S. is about to fall, the communists are about to invade, uh, the leaders are all secret communists, blah, 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 blah. Um, this movement reemerged uh, starting in the late 80s, but really expanded very quickly in the 90s and 1994, which we properly know as the militia movement that McVeigh and Terry Nichols came out of. Um, I should say in the 70s, there was another group called Posse Gomitatis who are very important for forming a lot of the ideas the militias have, including the sovereign citizen ideas come out of this movement, which was founded by an explicitly white supremacist um, Christian identity preacher. I wanted to ask, is there, not, not to interrupt you, but like, uh, so we had these neo-Nazi groups in, in the 80s, like uh, the Order or, or the Bruder Schweigen, uh, which were committing, you know, uh, really heinous acts, including the, the murder of Allen Berg. Are, are those kind of groups the exact same thing as the militias? Does it, does it operate in the sort of same space? What's the, are, are there differences between the militia movement and other elements of the far right is sort of what I'm asking. They're cousins. And what we found, I'll explain a, a story about this, but I'll tell you first. What we found was in the 70s, the militias were all white supremacists and anti-Semites. Um, by the 90s, by the 80s, maybe half. By the 90s, maybe a quarter. And today, really, there aren't, there aren't these Christian identity preachers that were still running major militias in the 90s. You, you rarely find open white supremacists. The Oath Keepers will ban you if you're a member of a white supremacist group, and they really do keep neo-Nazi style white supremacists out of their out of their organization. You know, they like the implicit racism more than the explicit racism. Um, and so here's a story about how how the militias and the um, and the the white supremacist and when I say that I mean in sort of capital W capital S like formerly white nationalist movement how close they are. There was a Christian identity preacher, a racist version of Christianity uh, named Swift, who was one of the major preachers in the U.S. And when Swift died, I believe in the early seven around the early seventies, there were two members of his congregation. He was in Southern California. Um, Richard Butler and William Potter Gale. Uh, Butler ended up taking over the congregation. Now, what Gale did is he formed the Posse Comitatus group, who are really the prototype and the predecessor to the militias. The sovereign citizens come out of his like weird reading of the Constitution mixed with the Bible, mixed with just like fanciful anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and such. He was he was the one who developed this idea that the county sheriff can decide what laws are constitutional or not. So lots of militia ideas and formations and organizing strategies come out of him. So this is one route. The other route, Swiss congregation that proper was taken over by Richard Butler, who moved it to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and renamed it Aryan Nations. And they became, they were originally more of a, a militia style group, but openly racist. And then they became more of a neo-Nazi group in the 80s and 90s. And the order, some of the order members were, you know, met, I think they met at the Aryan Nations compound and some of them were Aryan Nations. Butler sounds like a, a familiar name to me. Did he have any connection to Ruby Ridge? So the guy at Ruby Ridge, um, Randy Weaver and his family, what Weaver was an Aryan Nations guy. And so, and this shows not just to the, not just to the like militias and the white supremacists split, but they'll come back together. Because what happened is that a lot of the more moderate militia people went to Weaver's defense. Um, uh, Bo Greitz showed up there to try to mediate the situation. And uh, Richard Mack, the founder of the CSPOA, he's the main guy promoting uh, its constitutional, gosh, I forget the whole acronym now, um, Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. 
Um, he's the main guy who promotes the idea that county sheriffs are the supreme law in the land and they can reject laws they don't like. And so Mac ended up doing stuff with Randy Weaver. So not just you see the militias and the white supremacists split, you'll see them come back together at certain junctures, as we did in the uh, uh, during Trump's presidential candidacy in 2016 and through the first half of 2017, when we did see militia groups and neo-Nazis and other white supremacists act in concert at, at public events, when, which ended about at Charlottesville. With regards to the militia movement's sort of iterations today uh, and the Oath Keepers. What's the background on uh, Stuart Rhodes and this whole Oath Keepers group? So the Oath Keepers, so they're the new wave of militias as we know them. The militias really go in very distinct boom and bust cycles. So the 90s one really shot up in 94 and it flattened out uh, by 2001 with 9-11, because, you know, they're always like the president's a secret communist and having George Bush, you know, super patriotic conservative invading, you know, Muslim countries, they, they couldn't organize against that. But there became a new wave of the militia movement in 2008, 2009, right when um, Obama was elected. This is the Tea Party came out of this, the Oath Keepers came out of this, and the Three Percenters came out of this who are a more decentralized and at least originally much more radical group than the Oath Keepers. For example, the Oath Keepers will bar felons from being members, or at least on paper, at least they used to, and the three percenters have no such bar, right? Because anyone can say they're a three percenter, uh, although now there are organized three percenter groups, which wasn't the original idea. So all these groups come out of this moment, these, these three major groups of 2008, 2009, that runs up to our current period of the militias. Um, Rhodes formed this organization. It originally wasn't an armed organization. Uh, it was uh, to recruit um, police, military, and first responders. They expanded it to, I think, current and former. Most of the people who they have like that are former members, especially of military and police, not all. Um, but they've expanded it. Now anybody can really join. You're like an associate member or something, but now anybody can join it. It's They often get a lot of attention because they're... Uh, a very publicly visible organized group. Um, and they did become armed as the years went on. I think around the time Trump was elected became a much more militia style group. Earlier on, they're like, we're not a militia. But there's tons and tons of militia groups that are probably altogether much bigger than the Oath Keepers. Uh, a lot of people join the Oath Keepers and quit. Uh, Rhodes is known as a grifter who's not serious. So they're really serious people who want to start a civil war or whatever, or just like, yes, you know, Rhodes is just in it for the membership fees. He doesn't have a good reputation with the others. Unlike the Bundy family, who actually have a really stellar reputation of pulling off armed actions and resisting the federal government, right? So Ammon Bundy has his own big group called People's Rights now that I think is taken a lot more seriously. And there's just tons of unorganized militia groups. So they're loosely organized, like the Lightfoot militias and lots of three percenter groups and stuff. So in some sense, the Oath Keepers are just the most visible because if you have a coherent organization with a leader, it just gives you a visibility that a, a larger decentralized amorphous movement won't have. What percentage of the militia movement types are, I, I think there is a, a, you know, probably relatively small portion that are just sort of these wildly anti-government libertarians. But I think the bigger uh, portion of it is sort of this white nationalism, whether implicit or explicit. Yeah, the number of principled libertarians in those organizations is very low. I thought, 
that there were more like that, especially in the 90s. It was downplayed a lot by people in countercultural circles, like kind of come out of the punk and associated countercultural scenes. And I've been going back reading a lot of this stuff. And there were people who had ended up were far right, had far right attitudes who were hiding this and and purposefully downplayed the anti-Semitic and racist nature and conspiratorial nature of these things. They portrayed them largely as, you know, just libertarians who had some kooky conspiracy ideas about the UN. And it's far more pernicious than that. Um, so yeah, there aren't a lot of principled libertarians. They're all conspiracy theorists. You know, it's coded anti-Semitism. It's it's very rarely explicit anti-Semitism. Um, almost none of the groups, none of the groups I know of today, not true in the past, but today are white supremacists, for example, in the sense that they won't accept non-white members, although I doubt a Muslim could join any of these groups. You know, it'd be a rare militia group that a Muslim could join. But other than that, you know. They're, um, you know, far right people who believe in a lot of conspiracy theories and they're armed. Their views used to be more wild than they are now, because a lot of the views now are, are really like many Trumpists, you know, like it's the same temperature as Q, Pizzagate and the Trumpists and all the anti-vaxxers and stuff. Uh, it's just that they're paramilitary formations and that, you know, becomes another thing. Um, you know, there's always a threat there. Being armed, an armed activist gives you the um, added bonus of uh, automatically being uh, 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 being able to intimidate people just by the fact of you know by the fact that you're armed, especially with this wild rhetoric that all these conspiracy theorists use. And this can have a really chilling effect in rural areas where progressives or people who are just Democrats are afraid to speak up. You know, with all these armed paramilitaries in their communities, so. Yeah, not a lot of principled libertarians, you know, but but just kind of a lot of wild Trumpists, at least today. For listeners that may not know, why has uh, Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers been in the news again? At the Capitol takeover on January 6, 2021, a group of Oath Keepers, I think about a dozen of them or so, 10, 12, uh, were, um, you know, there's tons of video of, of the the whole event. Uh, were, were seen entering the Capitol in a military-style formation called a stack. Not something I'd ever heard of before, but you can see them in a kind of uniform and camo and stuff uh, and entering together in a formation. And so, you know, as the congressional uh, committee that's investigating the events has, um, you know, gotten more and more info, you know, there's all kinds of, it ended up that Stuart Rhodes was in contact with, he wasn't there or he wasn't, didn't enter the Capitol, was in contact with them and uh, cheered this on and encouraged them. One of the Oath Keepers members had brought a bunch of um, weapons and equipment and stashed it at a hotel, to be fair, at a hotel room outside of the city, I think in Virginia, um, you know, and was supposed to, there was apparently some kind of plan to have a, if the Capitol was taken over and held to, to bring guns in. I don't know how serious any of this stuff was. Uh, I'm much more jaded about some of these things. There's all kinds of communications that people have shown up of Rhodes threatening bloody civil war, you know, beforehand. But the problem is, if you know about Rhodes, he does this all the time. He's done this for 12 years, the whole time the Oath Keepers have been together. It's actually pretty wild that he has done this so many times and been out like the Bundy Ranch standoff where the Oath Keepers are part of it and shown up at Mall here um, and used this violent rhetoric and these immense threats and nothing's happened to him. But I, I think it's coming back to bite him on the ass this time. 
Um, I mean, it is. I don't know how serious or how pivotal a role the Oath Keepers played in the takeover. You, you mean on uh, January 6th? On January 6th. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I think like 11 have been arrested and compare this to about 40 Proud Boys and affiliates who've been arrested. And it was the Proud Boys who were really, you know, smashing the windows and, and, and coming in as more of an organized group and being the most militant. So it may be a case, you know, I don't have any, I'm not privy to any inside information. Um, I'm a little dubious. I mean, having the guns is a bad sign. I'm a little dubious because Rhodes' statements are always so outlandish. And frankly, if the Oath Keepers wanted to help, you know, overthrow the government, why would they only send 10 people in? They, they can mobilize a lot more than that. Um, but we'll see how that, we'll see, you know, what comes up with that. I mean, I think a lot of people, if you ask me for Rhodes, this is just a shtick. It's a money-making shtick. But for the people who listen to it, they believe it, right? They're not going to join the group and pay him money if they don't believe they're going to take part in a civil war against the communist dictatorship. So he cannot believe something, but still, you know, uh, uh, help, um, you know, encourage people to go act these fantasies out. And so both things may be happening at the same time. I was going to ask, do you happen to know how old Rhodes is? I think he's around 50, but that's just a guess. The only reason I asked was because it seems like a lot of these far right figures they hit a certain age and they, uh, you know, just start, you know, drifting for money. They, they start building their their sort of nest egg. And, uh, you know, that, that's the direction they seem to go in. Um, yeah, I mean, it is hard if you're, you know, at first people become leaders as they surf their moment. and They're very serious, but, you know, then they don't have a job. They quit their job because they're full time activists. And then at some point you know, it goes down, the, the, um, the support from that initial movement goes down and you either go get a regular job or you stay an activist. And if you already have a reputation, then you go into a fundraising cycle. I'm a little more maybe okay with that. I don't see it any different than a nonprofit. You know what I mean? If you form a political nonprofit, you know, if you're an ecological one in the eighties or nineties, when this was a big impetus, and then, you know, your wave of support goes down, you want to keep doing political work. So you fundraise, um, as long as people are giving him money willingly and not, he's not scamming them out of it. That's their business, you know, and that's his business, but, um, he doesn't really do anything. That's where the more grifter part goes in. It's like, what's he doing with this money? I mean, are they doing actual organizing even like, it's more like he jets around and gives these crazy talks and then, and then, and then what do they do? You know, he's a very like um, uh, helicoptering in for media events. It doesn't sound like you're saying we shouldn't be concerned about these, these people like Rhodes and the Oath Keepers, but are there any groups that you think it's beyond just this sort of outlandish drifting for media attention that we really need to be focusing on right now? It's not that we don't need to pay attention to the Oath Keepers. We do. And they, in a sense, success breeds success because they're a coherent group. People listen to Rhodes and he has a platform and then that becomes important. And once you're important, you just sort of stay important because of that. Um, but the militias and these other groups, just like every other movement, just like the left has become incredibly decentralized because of social media, the role of formal organizations has been lessened um, you know, we've seen with these leaks of membership roles or constantly are leaks that being a membership based organization is a security uh, threat to you, you know, um, 
And so uh, like all kinds of politics, especially more radical politics, you know, they're organized on Facebook or Telegram or, you know, whatever your platform of choices, which partly depends on your age and generation and politics and stuff. It's much harder to keep on top of that way because, you know, a channel can blow up to 100,000 people next week and in two months be gone. How do you how do you keep tracking that unless you're just totally sitting right on it, which is one reason people want their attention wants to go back to formal organizations. And of course, the authorities are always looking for the culprit behind something. You know, they're always looking for a leader and a, and a, a formal a formal group who's behind a conspiracy. It actually becomes a lot like far right stuff. Um, so, but you kind of have to pay attention to the, the movement as a whole. I mean, like the whole capital takeover, it wasn't, didn't come out even, they can look at orgs or the roles even of important groups like the Proud Boys, but the whole thing didn't come out of one organization. There wasn't one lever to it. You know, it wasn't Trump, you know, pulling the strings from behind the scenes, even if he may have guided it and been okay with it and encouraged people. You know what I mean? It wasn't like there was a secret plan and ringers all around. And they're like, now we push into the Capitol in one organized structure. Politics these days are just incredibly, you know, amorphous and decentralized. So you kind of have to, I mean, I tend to keep tabs on like how big any specific platform of the moment is like a telegram channel or, or traffic for a page or some media source. And then, because you've got to be able to see it. And then how many people will show up to an actual physical event? Although that is more problematic than it used to be, because it used to be you could have a big online presence and it, five people would show up, but now you can have a big online presence. Nobody, nobody physically show up until an event, and then you actually do pull a lot of people in. So it's very difficult to gauge, I think, peripheral movements these days the, the more you get to the center you can look at voting things and you go uh, how big a nonprofit is or something what their annual budget is but yeah i think that's it's not an easy answer but i think it's it's a it's a complicated time to 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 look at look at grassroots politics these days yeah and i, I just wanted to add to that i think it's a good answer because I, I think people do miss uh the forest for the trees at times when talking about uh these issues related to the far right, because, you know, ultimately this movement goes back a lot further than Trump. And I would even say um, even the, the nineties militia movement, it goes farther back than that. I mean, we can look at things like uh, the John Birch society. And I, I think you can see, uh, you know, threads uh, to, to a sort of bigger web going back decades. Oh yeah. The, if you read Birch society literature from the, I think they were founded in 58 from the sixties or whatever, it reads exactly like stuff today. And they were very influential in the militias and they're still around and they still actually do have influence. Um, yeah. You, you, you go back and read this stuff and it sounds very much like things you'd hear today. Berlin lions really say the first, well, the first big U S movement was the uh, 1830s around Andrew Jackson, who was one of who's Trump's favorite president, but even going back to the 1790s in the U S to the very beginning, these like anti-Masonic movements and such. Also stuff like uh, the, the no nothings and mm-hmm. uh, the, the anti-Catholic movements. I mean, there's a long history of this, this kind of thing in the U S. Yeah. None of this is new, really. It's just in, 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 the last hundred years, maybe we haven't had a president that has taken this position. I mean, we, we have had big movements. I think people sort of overlook the influence of the segregationists, the anti-civil rights segregationist movement in the 50s and 60s. But, you know, um, that aside, 
we haven't had a president like this in a long time, but it's a constant thread in American politics. Now, the other issue I wanted to touch upon with you, um, if only briefly, is the uh, Texas synagogue, the Texas synagogue uh, situation that happened um, over the weekend. And this issue of, well, you brought it up earlier, anti-Semitism and the sort of uh, code of anti-Semitism that gets used in the right. And uh, you've written about how uh, you're worried um, that this seeps into the left. Uh, you've written a whole article on that. And I, I really wanted to talk about that because I do think uh, there's an issue with people not taking anti-Semitism seriously enough. And I say that as someone who uh, can be very critical of, of say, uh, you know, Israeli actions towards Palestinians, but I think you have to be very careful not to fall into uh, just rank anti-Semitism. Yeah. Um, my experience with this, and I've talked to other people who've, or I've read like, for example, Ken Stern, who used to work at the American Jewish Committee and wrote a lot of the early stuff about the militia movement, had the exact same experiences that we were, um, knew about the far right and were used to, the, knew the rhetoric of the anti-Semitic rhetoric of the far right of neo-Nazis and, and such. And we're shocked when we saw leftists using the same rhetoric and they were always like, no, no, this is an anti-Semitic, you're just a Zionist or whatever. Usually, although not always be, you know, taken in the context of a criticism of Israel or Zionism or whatever. It was really like an affront. I was like, no, no, I know what this stuff is. What you're saying could come out of the mouth of a neo-Nazi. This happens sometimes. People are very resistant to policing it. We've had examples uh, here in New York where Holocaust deniers have been on left-wing platforms, which is bad enough, but then you'll have the left-wing community like will basically not try to push push back against it. Only a handful of people will. We had this at a um, activist space in New York right before Trump called the Brooklyn Commons, where um, a Holocaust denier had been part of Willis Cardo's organization spoke, and this was one of the major crypto-Nazi leaders of the 80s and 90s. He was the major figure to spread Holocaust denial in the U.S. I, I you know, think and, I know exactly who you're talking about, by the way, but go on. Uh, we won't name uh, it. <laughs> oh, uh, Bolin. Um, yeah, Chris, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a kook. And so it ended up the woman who it ended up a rich woman owned the whole space. It was like an activist space, but she actually owned it. And she ended up being a 9-11 truther. And Bolin was like, this thing was like, oh, the Zionists did 9-11. And she was like, oh, all truthers can speak. And, you know, and then people didn't it's, really want to push him out. Go ahead. I, I just wanted to say real quick, I actually knew someone um, who's based out of um, New York, uh, Jenna Orkin, who does work on um, the EPA and mm-hmm. uh, the, the deadly dust, the asbestos stuff. With regards to 9-11, she was asked to go to a, a conference to talk about it. And Bolin was there. She said, I'm not going. I'm not going. I will not, you know, go to a conference with an anti-Semite. And, uh, you know, it's things like that. You know, I think people should be really aware uh, when you have people like Christopher Bolin running around trying to do entryism into left spaces. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of examples like this. Um, There was uh, uh, Tim, which Calvert in Portland, Oregon. This was a big campaign of Rose City Antifa before Trump to get this guy. He was a left wing organizer who went to some peace and justice meetings in Eugene, Oregon, and they believed in the the Zionist lobby conspiracy theory, which is the idea that a group of rich, you know, Jews basically control either the United States government or the United States government's foreign policy. 
Um, and that's why, you know, Israel gets anything it wants, which it doesn't actually, if you, if you look at um, policies that, that Israel wants or that even that Jewish groups are lobbying for, pro-Israel groups are lobbying for. Um, and this is the same idea that you find on the far right. It's a conspiracy theory about Jewish control. Um, you know, world control becomes national control. It's this whole dialogue about, you know, a small secretive group of Jews, like make the nation act against its interests. The fascinating thing about this is it's implicitly a right-wing nationalist view because the idea is without these outsiders, our country would do the right thing. And, you know, we would be a principled nation as if like imperialism, as if U.S. imperialism didn't exist, right? Like the U.S. couldn't be supporting Israel for its own geopolitical gain. It's, it's only supporting it because, you know, there is a nefarious group who just happened to be Jewish, maybe explicitly Jewish or just happened to be Jewish, uh, who are perverting the country for their own, for their own uh for benefit or what they perceive as their own benefit. Um, so this guy got convinced, Scott, he was a, a activist who'd been around for decades. He had founded the big bike co-op in Portland. He worked at a leftist bookstore there. He was on the board of directors of a regional co-op federation. And he went to the far right, uh, was bringing Holocaust deniers in to speak at left-wing spaces, had a guy who was um, an anti-abortion bomber who had done jail time for doing bombings uh, speak. And so, and then there had to become a campaign to remove him out of these spaces and people wouldn't join in the campaign. They were like, Oh, we know Tim, he's a good guy. You know, and so people had to push, 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 push just to get this guy who's doing these crazy things. You know, he's clearly left the realm of the left altogether um, to remove him from these positions. And some of these things took years for them to do this. So there's a real apathy about it too, which, and that apathy to me is a form of anti-Semitism as well that people don't want to recognize it. It took me many years of frustration to be like, well, I don't understand why the left, when confronted with a right-wing Holocaust denier, cannot just be like, get the fuck out of here, right? And I was like, oh, this idea that anti-Semitism is a non-issue is actually a kind of anti-Semitic idea itself. Just like if you had a, a real racist in our circles, if you had a neo-Nazi white supremacist who was dropping N-bombs, and people said, nah, whatever. I mean, yeah, we wish he wasn't here, but we're not going to do anything. You'd be like, well, that's a racist attitude yourself. The fact that you can't see this as a problem. So that's what I think. Well, let's talk about the synagogue takeover because I think it's an, uh, uh, the synagogue uh, kidnapping. I think it's an excellent um, example that doesn't have to do with the left or the right because it's Islamist stuff of how anti-Semitism works. So, or how it can work and how it can affect events all around the world. So everyone doesn't know this, but uh, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda are very explicitly and very deeply anti-Semitic, right? This gets glossed over a lot. Um, and bin, bin Laden's writings are available in English if you want to read them. Very few people seem to read them, but they're kind of interesting. He's clearly influenced by like left-wing anti-imperialists like Chomsky, which he's publicly said these things, and, and William Bloom, which is kind of interesting too, but... Um, because his career started as fighting communists and he's espousing a communist version of anti-imperialism. So one reason that Al-Qaeda attacked New York is that it was, you know, the Jewish financial center of the world. And they're this is one of the reasons and they're explicit about this. So anti-Semitism is part of 9-11. So the U.S. invades Afghanistan and there they arrest, I forget her first name, Siddiqui, um, the, the woman who the uh, kidnapper was trying to get freed, Siddiqui. The U.S. claimed that she she's a uh, holds like multiple doctorates. I think was a I think she was a physicist. Anyway, very very intelligent uh, woman. 
that they claim she had been detained and then tried to grab a gun and kill a U.S. soldier. I don't know if it's true or not. Convicted of this, put in a um, terrorism prison in Carswell, Texas. And I randomly actually knew someone who was imprisoned with Siddiqui, where like Siddiqui is really like, has, is probably schizophrenic. So anyway, which is a weird mirror of this guy who was the kidnapper. So Siddiqui is explicitly anti-Semitic too. And she's like, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, blah, 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 blah. You know, my Zionist lawyer, I think she fired her lawyers because they were Jewish. So no question here, Siddiqui's an anti-Semite. So then this guy goes from Britain and travels to Texas and, you know, takes these four people hostage in a synagogue because he's an anti-Semite and he thinks the Jews can free Siddiqui, um, which, of course, they can't. In fact, he, got, he gets the rabbi to call the, the central synagogue in New York City. It's just like, I think it's in central New Manhattan. That's why they call it that. But I'm sure he's like, oh, the central synagogue of America to try to pressure them to free Siddiqui. Um, so the interesting thing in all of this, so, you know, 9-11, anti-Semitism, U.S. invades, Siddiqui, you know, gets arrested. She espouses anti-Semitism. She goes to Texas. This guy flies from Britain. He uses anti-Semitism in taking the synagogue over. Jews are part of none of this. Jews did not do 9-11. Jews did not get the U.S. to invade Afghanistan. Jews did not get Siddiqui arrested. And um, Jews cannot free Siddiqui from prison. So uh, as I like to say, it's not Jews. Jews vary a tiny percent of the world population. I think there's only like 18 million Jews. Jew the Jewish population only in the last couple of years reached the same total levels that they did before World War II because Hitler killed so, like a third of the world Jewish population. It's just, you know, as the world population has exploded, the Jewish population has only gotten back to pre-war levels. I want to add something to that real quick, too. Uh, The other thing is uh, Jewish people aren't and have never been uh, a monolith. It's it's like you you had mentioned uh, the whole stuff about uh, the Israel lobby. I mean, there's multiple uh, lobbies. There isn't just a a, a lobby called um, APAC. There's also J Street, you know, uh, and they have very different views. Uh, You know, like Jewish people are not a monolithic group that all hold this like same viewpoint on everything. Two Jews, three opinions is, is the phrase. But yeah, Jews are completely, it's a community that is constantly bickering with each other. They're, you know, um, confrontation and arguments are very acceptable inside of a lot of the community, at least amongst Ashkenazi Jews. I do programming at the Evo Institute for Jewish Research here in New York. So I get, I get <laughs> some inside scoop for the Jewish community. Jews have all different kinds of opinions. And in fact, in Israel, Jews as a whole in America are to the left of even of what the U.S. government is. So it's like kind of funny to point your finger at the Jewish community. If the Jewish community as a whole had it say, you know, there would be a, a, a much more progressive U.S. policy on these things. Uh, but as I was going to say, Jews as such affect comparatively little in the world, at least uh, they've affected the Palestinians. You know, groups of Jews have affected the Palestinian culture very dramatically. But other than that, the amount of effect Jews have is a tiny amount compared to the amount of effect anti-Semitism has. You know, anti-Semitism is what helped drive 9-11. Anti-Semitism is what, you know, drove Hitler, not just to do the Holocaust, but, you know, his whole expansionist um, move, his whole ideology was primarily based on anti-Semitism. So in a funny way, anti-Semites say Jews are the, the, the lever, you know, behind the movement of the world. But in fact, it's anti-Semites themselves who are, they don't run the world or they don't, not the main lever in the world, but they have far, far, far more impact than Jews do. 
Yeah, I just wanted to add to that before we close out. I mean, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because um, I often feel like um, Jewish people, the Jewish community, uh, end up being scapegoated uh, for things that they're not responsible for. E- like even broader things, like uh, you know, I, I think there's right wing uh, people that use uh, you know the Davos crowd or Davos man as uh, basically coded anti-Semitism. And it, it almost lets, you know, uh, rich capitalists off the hook if you're uh, a critic of, of capitalism uh, by turning it into this thing where it's not really about capitalism. It's about, mm-hmm. you know, these Jewish people. And it, it's it's very sad to me because I, I think it's used as a mechanism uh, to scapegoat and divert people's attention away from a lot of real issues. That's exactly what anti-Semitism is. Um, you know, either it's the Jews are causing something and not capitalism, or even the leaders of the country, usually the Christian leaders of the country. I mean, for example, with the Zionist lobby thing, the U.S. Con- you know, House, uh, the U.S. Congress is overwhelmingly Christian, right? I mean, it's so if the Zionist lobby is doing it, then you know the blame isn't on the Christian president, the Christian vice president, and you know the, the Christian Congress, right? It, it's a you know you get to blame somebody else, so people have to take responsibility for their actions. What's become really pernicious is when sometimes uh, personification is used instead of looking at systems. So instead of capitalism or global capitalism, we have individuals, you know, like the Bilderbergers or, or small groups of individuals, Bildersbergers, Rothschilds and Soros or whatever, as if you could just remove these individuals. Or even if we talk about bankers, right, as if you could remove these individuals um, and the system would go away. And there wasn't the problem wasn't that there is a system of finance capital, which itself is part of a broader system of capital. There's no finance, there's no capitalism without finance. There, you know, you can't just remove even one part of that. But if you start thinking it's individuals and you can remove the individuals, you're gonna be at best wrong. And at worst, you know, that is a scapegoating. And you will find again and again and again, if you name individuals, those individuals three quarters of the time are going to be Jewish. You know, it's going to be Soros. It's going to be the Rothschilds. It's going to be, it's me, right? The fact that I was, you know, the QAnon shaman was a anti, it was originally a explicitly anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that as it went on, the whole me part about me being Jewish, only part of my family is Jewish, but to Nazis, I'm a Jew, um, got washed out, but I'm still the one being named, right? Soros, uh, cultural Marxism, all of these things start out with anti-Semites naming Jews, because they're Jews, and then the idea gets spun out, and then people lose the notion, or they do know it, uh, but they're coding it. But most of the time, they don't even think about it, um, that it's an individual behind, behind these nefarious things in the world. That individual almost invariably ends up being Jewish, and all of that distracts people's attention from the real cause of their problems. Um, and so people in power love it because they're like, oh, yeah, go after Soros, you don't have to go after the system of global capital. You don't have to really look at the role of finance in our economy and how fair has been raising up and how you know Keynesianism has gone out of the way. That would be complicated and that might actually affect real power structures. Sure, go after this one guy. And if he's Jewish, too bad for him. So also, j- just because we're on this subject of the, the sort of coda anti-Semitic language. So there, there's people I'm very influenced by, like... Um, you know, the, the sociologist C. Wright Mills, and, and he has used the term or, or he sort of coined it, the idea of the, the power elite. But now we see how uh, that term elites 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really often used as a dog whistle. It seems like the right often takes a lot of uh, terms and then puts this sort of anti-Semitic spin on them. So how are we able to tell uh, when something is coded anti-Semitism? Because it seems like they'll adopt uh, terms and, and put that anti-Semitic spin on them every so often. They'll sort of change the terms. You know, they go from talking about, uh, oh, the, the Zionist occupied government in the 90s mm-hmm. to then using terms like, um, you know, elites. So, mm-hmm. so how do we tell when these things are being used as dog whistles? Well, it can be a little complicated. Um, C. Wright Mills was a sociologist. I actually have a PhD in sociology, so I read a bunch of Mills. Um, I think my disc chair wrote a book on him. Um, Mills was trying to come up with a non-Marxist but critical analysis of American society. And so instead of talking about classes, he talked about elites. There are real elites in a society. This isn't, you know, this isn't a conspiracy theory, and Mills was not a conspiracy theorist. Um, you will get terms that are real things. So somewhat separately, um, you will get terms that are real things. There, there are Zionists, you know, Israel is real. There are bankers, right? And how do you separate? There isn't a pro-Israel lobby. I mean, there are groups that lobby on Congress, you know, and are supportive of Israel, um, just like there are about Saudi Arabia and other countries. Um, so how do you separate this from a conspiracy theory? Um, I mean, how do, how, do you, how do you separate this from reality? And you got to look, is it a conspiracy theory narrative? I mean, it's my view that if you have a conspiracy theory narrative, that it's a, a small, usually secretive group of people who are pulling the strings uh, from, uh, from behind the curtain, that they're causing, they're the, the cause of events in the world that make people act against their interests or act against the national interests in particular that are often international. Um, and they're the lever that makes world history go around. And if we just got rid of them, the people or the white people or the Gentiles or whatever it is would all be hunky-dory. That's a conspiracy theory. And if you're naming a Jews or a Jewish group, that's an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. At best, it's a conspiracy theory, and you need to reject that. Conspiracy theories aren't true. I mean, there are occasional real conspiracies, but they don't follow this pattern. Um, and the real conspiracies are are rarer than you think. I mean, of course, people talk behind the scenes and and collaborate, but that's not a conspiracy per se. Otherwise, anytime you and I deciding that I'd be on the podcast would be a conspiracy, right? I mean, everyone doesn't look at our emails. I I will say this. I mean, mean, for me, what's interesting is that, you know, the right often invokes uh, conspiratorial thinking, but I think it's the, the right, and especially, I mean, the far right, those distinctions are increasingly just completely blurred. But I think the right often operates in a way that is, uh, you know, quasi conspiratorial. When I look at groups like the the Council for National Policy, it's it's almost like they're projecting a lot when they talk about conspiracy theories. There's a ton of projection that goes on on the far right, in particular, the militias are, are the craziest about this. You know, they say, oh, you know, the UN or China is going to invade and they're going to declare martial law and have troops marching in the streets. Well. <laughs> The troops marching in the streets are militias, right? There are no other troops marching in the U.S. streets. Um, you know, when they say the republic's about to fall, Stuart Rhodes, the republic's about to fall. Well, who's trying to overthrow the republic? It's the Oath Keepers. Um, you know, if you read the protocols of the elders of Zion, they believe there's, you know, a one world government that controls everything in an iron grip. Well, what do you think Hitler tried to do? He, you know, was in a, literally trying to enact the same ideas that Jews were blamed for. So there's tons of this projection going on. 
And in a way, it's like, um, you know, it's a kind of like meta-level gaslighting, right? I mean, Trump talking about corrupt elites, like what's a corrupt, rich, international elite other than the Trump family? I mean, it's them. They're talking about themselves, but they're blaming other people, you know, for the thing. So, yeah, there's tons of the projection going on. This is why you always find, this is why we're seeing all these QAnon um, uh, figures be child, you know, sexual predators themselves, right? Because they're like, they're throwing who they are onto other people. You'll even sometimes find people of color who are, who are white supremacists, you know, who are hiding their backgrounds and become, and Jewish sometimes, the guy who was the, behind the neo-Nazi group that was involved in the Skokie ruling in the 70s, he ended up being Jewish. So you'll find people projecting, projecting their own fears or, or, or just trying to like, you know, move the attention off of them by blaming other people for, for what they actually are. Um, rather than having the attention, you know, turned to them. So that's actually pretty common. Last thing, uh, since I mentioned your piece that you wrote on um, looking at, at left anti-Semitism, uh, it's interesting because I've seen people try to say that you're, you're saying in that piece that anyone who is, uh, you know, uh, Palestinian solidarity is, is an anti-Semite or that uh, anyone who's anti-Zionist is anti-Semite. And you, you pretty much say at the beginning of that piece that, you know, anti-Zionist does not necessarily uh, equal anti-Semite. So I, I wanted you to maybe explain what people have gotten wrong about that piece. Well, um, wait, this thing about my piece in particular? Or they yeah, say because I, I, th- I think people have been, I, I think people uh, make really outrageous claims saying uh, that, that you're, you're conflating, uh, you know, criticism of Israel with uh, anti-Semitism. And that's not what you do in that piece. No, not at all. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, I mean, there's a Venn diagram between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Um, some people who say they're anti-Zionists aren't interested in Israel at all. They don't even talk about it. I mean, you know, or Palestinians. Um, some of them are really don't probably don't like Palestinians. David Duke pretends, you know, the white nationalist leader that he's an anti-Zionist. He always talks about the Zionists. You'll find anti-Zionists who are just going on and on about the Zionists controlling the Federal Reserve or where the Zionists controlling the U.S. government, but it's not actually about Israel or Palestine. There are people who are Palestine solidarity activists who use anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. That's just true. And unfortunately, it's very true in Palestine itself. Um, Hamas is a group that does this. They claim the Zionists control the world through the Rotary Clubs, like really wild stuff. Um, not all Palestinians, even in the West Bank and Gaza, are like this. Some of them are very principled people. Um, and the same thing with uh, Western anti-Zionists. Um, first off, there's a difference between anti-Zionism and criticisms of Israel. Again, in the U.S., most American Jews are very liberal and very critical of Israeli policies. Um, but if you are an anti-Zionist in the sense that you are trying to dissolve Israel as a Jewish state, that certainly doesn't mean you're an anti-Semite. Um, I know tons of Jewish, you know, anti-Zionists who are uh, very committed to being part of the Jewish community, um, practicing Jewish traditions. There's nothing anti-Semitic about that. There's nothing anti-Semitic about a Palestinian, you know, being like, this is wrong that, you know, Palestinians are under military occupation. This is wrong that my family got, you know, kicked out of Israel in 48. This is wrong that I can't just fly into Israel and go visit my home village. There's nothing anti-Semitic about that, Period. So, you know, but again, there's a lot of people, some people use anti-Semitic conspiracy theories or Holocaust deniers. I mean, this is all very complicated when you get into Middle Eastern politics, because those groups, uh, actors there 
far more strongly tend to have anti-Semitic ideas. Um, you have people who are not, and then you get shades of gray, you know, in between them. Like, uh, even if someone doesn't use an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, I, I, it really does, uh, you know, jar on me when they like brag about Palestinians murdering unarmed Israelis, you know. Is that anti-Semitic? Well, it's not not anti-Semitic, but that's not a conspiracy theory. At least you can say that person is just a little dehumanizing, right? And, you know, many supporters of Israel are dehumanizing too. And they don't, you'll find people on both sides of this, you know, who are dehumanizing, who, you know, one side you'll find is a Zionist, you'll find Islamophobes, you'll find anti-Semites and anti-Zionists. And then I like to say there's kind of the rest of us, um, you know, who are in between this, who don't want these two things. Whenever I'm looking for people to work with uh, on these kinds of issues, I find someone who's against Islamophobia and against anti-Semitism. Once you do that, you know, you cut the chafe off and you can you can deal with the wheat and find the things that you want. But no, anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. Yes, sometimes anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism can be the same thing. Uh, often, in many cases, unfortunately, there's a complicated um, uh, interchange between it. And we all, especially if you're doing solidarity work with Palestine, and God knows the Palestinians, you know, need help to change their situation. You know, I hope that you will take some time to try to learn about anti-Semitism and to disentangle your politics, um, especially if you don't know a lot about them or you don't know a lot about anti-Semitism, to disentangle Palestine po solidarity politics from anti-Semitism. And this is going to help you because if you don't really know what you're talking about and you're using some slogans you saw on somebody's, your aunt's Facebook page, and you may end up repeating anti-Semitic stuff, not that you intend to, if it's coded, um, you know, and then you will get in trouble. Your group will get in trouble. You will end up wasting your time defending yourself from accusations that you might actually be guilty of um, without understanding what's going on. It's a big time suck. So I encourage people, especially who are doing, you know, Palestine solidarity work to spend some time and learn about anti-Semitism and learn about when people, I look at situations when people are accused of anti-Semitism, not by crazy far right people, they'll, you know, or, or bloom, you know, I don't know, you know, right-wing media or Fox, they'll throw the terms around. But when people get accused of it in the, by liberals and the left, like look at those situations and understand why this is being said about them. Cause in 70, 80% of the situations, it's not just because they're anti-Israel or even that they're anti-Zionist, it's that there's said or did a specific thing. And this will, if nothing else, save you a lot of headache. The militia movement is such a hard story to kind of get your hands around. It really, really shows how important it is not just to have reporters, you know, parachuting in to tell stories and then going back to New York to write them up. But really, the importance of academics and researchers. I talk to militia dudes once in a while. You know, we're in western Pennsylvania, so they're certainly around. And I never feel like I have like a really good like bird's eye view, 360 degree view of the movement. I always feel like I am getting what they want me to hear. And I often feel with news coverage of the militia movement that the media is only getting and only transmitting what the militia movement itself wants us to hear. So it was it was great to, you know, kind of have that perspective from someone as knowledgeable as Spencer. I think the reason it's hard to get a bird's eye view of it and maybe not I, – I'm not sure you can ever get a, a totally bird's eye view of it, right? Because it's a diffuse movement. I mean, it's not it's not like this giant 
monolithic, centralized movement. It's it's very diffuse in a lot of ways. It's been interesting talking, like I said, to militia movement people, and the people I talk to are really very adamant that they're not racist, that they don't have like racist philosophy, and I believe them, you know, but when the whole damn system's racist, you know, does it, does it matter much that you don't particularly have racist philosophy or to tack it from another way, you know, it's like these ideas are recycled racist tropes, you know, maybe the word Jew is removed or maybe the word black is removed, but it's the same thing coming down to the core, like, like at what point does it no longer become racist or is it just – or is the militia movement just irredeemably racist because it came out of a racist movement in the past, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think too there's always this issue of like is something implicitly racist or is it explicitly racist and where do you – you know, I, I think some people would say, well, what does that mean if something's – implicitly racist you know i i think a lot of times people only think of things as being racist if it's explicit Mm -hmm. and then and then if you and then of course you're gonna be you're gonna be like uh inclined to deny that anyways because once you start talking about implicit bias and once you start talking about the system's racist it's like now it's incumbent on you to do something and you don't want to do something. You haven't had to do anything your whole life. Um, it's just like, you know, I, I just, I, I feel like the militia movement is more than anything a culture and um, a subculture. And these notions of, you know, is it racist full stop or is it not racist full stop? It's like, it's really it's really just hard to describe because you have so many individuals with so many ideas, so many beliefs as far as like you know, like take QAnon. You'll probably you go to you go to a Trump rally and you'll probably find ten people that let's say, whole number out of my ass, you'll find ten people that are explicitly we love Q, pro QAnon. But then you'll find a hundred people who they don't know for QAnon. <laughs> they don't really know much. They don't give it much thought. But then you start drilling down like specific ideas. And then they're QAnon ideas. It's like, and they're Trump's platform. So it's like, you know, I, I feel like you can't talk about the militia without talking about memes. And I'm not talking about like the funny pictures on Instagram. I'm talking about, you know, the Richard Dawkins, <laughs> you know, you know idea of like a, a unit of culture that transmits in the same way that like genes mind do. viruses mind viruses exactly it's one big mind virus um and i and i thought it was really interesting the way that it the talk became about anti-semitism because i mean really that's just another way of saying you know when you talk about anti-semitism in the left anti-semitism in the anti-war community mm-hmm. it's um kind of creeped in it creeps in the same way that it creeps into the militia movement or maybe like the militia movement comes out of the white power movement but it's become diluted just goes to show you that these things 
are always there lurking in the background. Right. I, I think with uh, the whole issue of the left and anti-Semitism, I think it gets very, very tricky at times, right? Because, you know, I, I've known Palestinian solidarity activists who I, you know, in my humble opinion, don't cross the line into anti-Semitism or mm-hmm. forms of Jew baiting. But there, there's also these elements that, you know, definitely do cross that line um, and get welcomed into spaces. Mm-hmm. Um one person who I think is like that is uh, Gilad Atzman, uh, who literally describes himself as a, a former Jew, which uh, it's kind of funny. He was interview- He was talking to Richard Spencer at one point, and he said, "I'm a former Jew." And then Richard Spencer said, "Well, Gilad, you don't get to you don't get to choose your identity," um, <laughs> which <laughs> you know. Uh, but Atzman has written like some really dark stuff. Um, he's known for a book called The Wondering Who, and, you know, he basically gets into Holocaust denial. Mm. Uh, and people like that have crept in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually think they do a disservice uh, to the Palestinian solidarity movement. There's even people in the solidarity movement that have said that. They don't want to have anything to do with characters like Galad Atzman. Uh, at the same time, I think sometimes you'll get people – uh, that are accused of anti-Semitism uh, for being pro-Palestinian when, you know, I- I'm not sure that's what's really going on. It's like the uh, the whole controversy over Emma Watson posting a, a picture on Instagram um, that was, you know, saying that, that we need solidarity with Palestinians or, or, you know, it's not anti-Semitic to be pro-Palestinian. Mm-hmm. She was accused of anti-Semitism for that. To me, that's a little bit... <laughs> Yeah. That's over the edge. But well, it gets what, tricky. Yeah, well what we're looking at is like what happens when movements don't police their own. Like my whenever I talk to um militia people who complain about being called racist, I say I mean look who you have. You know, you you have people that identify as national um Christian identity in your movement, in your militia or you know, you you have people handing out issues of, you know, articles from the spotlight. Um, and the same thing with the left. I mean, I, I feel like the conspiracy theories and very specifically the 9-11 truth movement really destroyed the anti-war movement in America, at least after, you know, at least in the aughts after, ni- you know, after 9-11, because... When George Bush was in office, all of a sudden, all these despicable figures, not you know, racist, you know, anti-Semites were allowed in because they knew how to eloquently talk about how 9-11 was an inside job. And um, and I just thought uh, your, your guest was really great in pointing out how – you know – how it was really great in pointing out how if you don't have like a coherent knowledge of racism and anti-Semitism and you're not always aware for it and you're not always aware of it, it's going to come in. It's going to come creeping in in the form of, you know, someone giving a a speech ostensibly about how terrible George W. Bush is, but it's actually, you know, the Jews caused 9-11 or whatever. Do you, uh, just to push back a little bit, do you, do you think that it – I'm not sure that it, it 
I'm not sure the 9-11 truth movement destroyed oh, the anti-war movement. Oh, I don't no, want to go Well, that. I mean, what I'm talking about is there was a robust anti-capitalist globalization movement in the 90s that I was part of. And then, you know, it was like there was a robust movement and then 9-11 happened and everybody was freaked out because all of a sudden now we see this in police state encroaching. We had just been through a few years of heavy-handed police tactics and police state, surveillance state shit anyways. And then all of a sudden it gets real once you start having fusion centers and George Bush in office and everybody in in your community that's not explicitly left-wing, not explicitly radical left, are like all of a sudden, you know, let's bomb Iraq. And then the 9-11 truth movement happened. It popped up on the internet and it was so much easier (laughs) to like... To just become an internet conspiracy theorist. And it really did cause the whole thing to grind to a halt. I think 90% of the people recovered their wits after five or six years. Certainly by the time Obama was president, people were kind of like back. But yeah, everything ground to a halt. I I guess I have a rosier view of the anti-war movement in in the Bush era. I I thought there was a lot of steam for the anti-war movement in that era. But I, I also think there was times where, you know poisonous elements uh, tried to divert uh, the anti-war movement into things like anti-Semitic causes. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't go to a uh, protest in Pittsburgh without all of a sudden realizing that the group behind the group that threw it was, you know, some kind of weird anti-Semitic thing or something. Or You know, it was just, it was awful. But, I mean, I think the left really just suffers from inertia more than anything. And probably the conspiracy theory stuff was just one form of that. Um, Inertia and maybe a lack of money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Lack of money. (laughs) uh, Not being an animal, you know, it's like, I mean, the the Republicans are winning for some reason, you know, I always like to mention the lack of money thing because, you know, it's not, yeah, a, a lot of like grassroots, grassroots, a lot of grassroots anti-war movement stuff and and similar movements, uh, they really are grassroots. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know a lot of stuff on the right is very much astroturfed. Um, the example I love to use for that is the John Birch Society. Everyone thinks the John Birch Society just grew from you know this grassroots anti-communist sort of. Uh, sentiment. It really didn't. It was it was founded by a candy manufacturer, and it was tied to a bunch of Texas oil types. You know, it was not a grassroots thing, um, and it had money behind it. So uh, yeah. So what's up with Parallax Views the next week or two? What do you got? What should people check out? Uh, so by the time this episode com- comes out, I'll have an episode out with uh, Barry Meyer, former New York Times journalist, who has a book out called Spooked. Uh, the Trump dossier, Black Cube, and the Rise of Private Spies, uh, which gets into the whole Christopher Still saga and the Still dossier, which gave us that whole very popular resistance conspiracy theory about uh, Trump was compromised uh, by the Russians and Vladimir Putin. They had a P-tape where he was peed on by uh, Russian prostitutes. Uh, you know, they had compromise on him. And it has turned out in the intervening year or so that after three years of hearing about this dossier and 
having it hyped up a lot that there wasn't much to it. And um, I think it's an important story because, you know, well, we see it now, right? Um, I don't know if you've seen some of the right-wingers and how they're responding to the news that, no, Ray Epps is not a federal agent. But a lot of them are saying, well, you know, this is just like the Still dossier. You know, know, why should we trust what the media tells us? Why should we trust them? Because I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of journalists did get the Still dossier wrong. I, I think a lot of people jumped on that and didn't question it. And, you know, now the right wing can use that as ammunition. So I, I think being critical of, um, you know, media missteps in a responsible way is very important. So I hope people listen uh, to that episode. And I also recently had Brian Karamon, the White House correspondent for Playboy, who is known for uh, his well, he's known for a number of incidents involving Donald Trump, uh, where he would question Donald Trump, and Donald Trump would get very angry. And Sebastian Gorka once called him a punk, not a journalist. And uh, I think uh, Kayla, what's her name, McEnany or whatever, McEnany, yeah, yeah, yeah. She she uh, she always referred to him as that Playboy reporter. <laughs> so Brian did not make many friends uh, with. Uh, the Trump administration, but I had a very interesting conversation with him. Uh, we managed to talk about the war on drugs, questioning George H.W. Bush about, you know, the time that President H.W. Bush said, oh, we've won the war on drugs. And Karen was like, well, the DEA is saying something different to me when I interview them. Uh, that was fun. And uh, we even talked about uh, General Smedley Butler and the need for media reform. So it was a very wild conversation. And Brian's a very... I, I would say Brian operates within the mainstream, but I think people would be surprised to find out that his views are very much um, in line with a lot of like lefty-leaning type people. I look forward to your interview with Barry Weiss. Was that what you? No, no, not Barry Weiss. Jesus. Let's get it together tonight on this island.